Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. This notice serves as a trigger warning that today's episode includes discussion of sexual assault. Welcome to episode 44 of Conversations with Kenyatta. Today's guest is James French. He's the chairperson of the Mount Pillar Foundation Board of Directors. James is also a banking and technology executive whose ancestral home is known Mount Pillar. Welcome, James, to Conversations with Kenyatta. Um, we have spoken before at the University Studying Slavery Conference um, at the University of Virginia, but I'm excited to have you here today because uh, I think our listeners will be very interested in learning more about you and your work at Mount Pillar. So let's start with you describing sort of your childhood and your career path. Well, thank you, uh, Kenyatta, and um, it's an honor to be here and talk with you today. Well, my my childhood is um, is is kind of a varied journey across various different uh, cities and countries and regions of the world. So I was born in Washington, D.C., and I am the son of David French and Carolyn French. So my father, David French, they're both past now. Uh, David French was a, a surgeon who studied at Howard University Medical School in the, in the 40s. And uh, he met my mother, Carolyn uh, Howard, who was uh, studying in New England, but had come home to Washington, where she's from. And they met while, while they were uh, at a party. And in, in, in Washington, D.C., and I began my life as one of eight children in Washington. And when I was four or five years old, we moved to Boston. And uh, I thought that that was going to be where I spent the rest of my childhood. And it was uh, my father was teaching at a medical school in Boston. And my mother was uh had founded the Crispus Attucks Children's Center in Roxbury, and that was a very happy childhood. However, one day my dad came home when I was 11 years old and said, I have some news to share with you. We are moving to Africa. And as you can wow. imagine, yeah, uh, that, that changed everything. So uh, that was a fateful, fateful day. And so we moved to the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, when I had just turned 12, I think it was the day after my birthday, and uh, I, the rest of my life has been spent in Africa, uh, you know, going to school there. I came back here. I did boarding school and my, my college experience and moved back to uh, Ivory Coast, and I've lived uh, and worked all over the continent, uh, West, Central, Northern, and Southern Africa. As I said, it's a mishmash, a uh, patchwork of different countries and regions and cultures and 
and languages and experiences that make up who I am today. In terms of my professional experience, it's it's very similar in terms uh, because it, it draws upon a lot of different aspects of my background. Um, my parents were um, very active in the civil rights movement in the 60s. My father worked with, he worked directly with Martin Luther King in running the physicians uh, organization that worked with the movement. And what they did was they provided early public health assessments of places in the Deep South in Mississippi and Alabama and, and reported back at some of the appalling uh, social and cultural conditions that were mm-hmm. very similar to places in developing countries. And that became one of the kind of the found the, the motivating foundation found foundational cores of the civil rights movement, uh, the appalling conditions that African Americans were allowed to live in. And um, and I, I was shaped quite a bit by his uh, my father's uh, uh, profession as a as a surgeon and then a public health physician in West Africa. But I mm-hmm. I I personally branched off and I. I became interested in understanding the causes behind poverty that I was seeing in in Africa that I grew up in, in the Ivory Coast in particular, because it was very obvious that these countries are indeed extremely rich, and so that always fascinated me. What are mm-hmm. the what are the what's what's this paradox about? How, how is it that these countries are so rich in terms of not just natural resources? But human resources, uh, people, brilliant people with, you know, just incredible talents and so varied and all this diversity that you see across Africa, which is something that most people don't imagine who haven't been to Africa is how varied it is, you know, almost 60 countries and hundreds and hundreds of different languages and cultures and the cradle of mankind. And, and so what is it that accounted for um the slow economic progress. And of course, that's a long history of, of global exploitation and it involves mm-hmm. uh, slavery and colonialism and, and imperialism. And that was uh, something that I, you know, have spent a, a lifetime being uh, fascinated by and working in. And that, that I, I was drawn to economics. And so after studying for an English degree in Boston, I came to Virginia at the University of Virginia and got an MBA at the Darden School and uh, moved back and, and, and went into finance, in, in, but based in Africa, based in the Ivory Coast, in Senegal, in Gabon, so Central and West Africa, and, and tried to unlock some of that economic potential, understanding how markets and finance work. And that brought me, you know, really to a very rich experience of trying to knit together and promote the economic uh, potential of various different economies um, across across the continent. And indeed, uh, Africa is an extremely rich um, uh, assortment of countries that are beset with huge problems of infrastructure, lack of infrastructure, lack of basic uh, investment in human resources and education. But really fascinating about Africa is that as demographic trends in the rest of the world decline, so as you have a, as the Chinese population uh, reaches a crescendo and begins to decline as it is, and the same for India, uh, uh, you know, projected into the future, the one region in the world 
that is growing in population at a fast clip is Africa. And Africa is now finally, mm. finally making up from the, the demographic deficit that was the Atlantic slave trade. Um, you know, millions mm -hmm. and millions of people who were captured and sent to to the West, to South America and the Caribbean and, and North America during a, a time of economic expansion and, in, and industrialization in the 18th and 19th century. Well, that really stunted Africa's demographic growth. And Africa is now just, just beginning to recoup from that. So, for example, by 2050, it is projected that um, one out of every four human beings on earth will be an African. And I, mm. under, I understood that uh, at a very young age because I was living there. And um, I'm really hopeful that most, uh, many more Americans will, will understand, especially young Americans, will understand that wherever they are in life today, whatever they're doing in life today, will be impacted by that demographic reality that one in f that a quarter of humanity in just a few years from now will be from Africa. And so Africa's success or failure, and I'm, I'm confident that uh, uh, most African countries will succeed, um, will impact the lives of every single American. And, and so that was, so, that's mm. something that I grew up with and still uh, continue to work in today. I work in a finance related field, which is FinTech, which is fin financial technology. And so it's, you know, just mm -hmm. think, think of your phone as, as a platform uh, to reach people who are unbanked, people who live in perhaps, um, you know, the, the far reaches of the formal economy, who can participate now for the first time in the formal economy in various countries because of the services that are, that are uh, made available to them through their phone or through the internet. And so FinTech, is is really a field that is developing and at a very fast clip in africa african countries uh, such as kenya uh south uh, africa you know even in west africa and nigeria and senegal and the francophone countries are leading the way for the world in terms of innovation and fintech and so that's a really exciting field mm. to be in because it will uh, be that field will be kind of um at at the gateway of welcoming this demographic uh, dividend, as they call it, of people as they enter into the world economy. So it's a very exciting field to, to be involved in. And so that's, it's very interesting to me that you're involved in fintech and that you, you know, lived in Africa when you were young and you, you continued to work, you know, with African countries. You know, so how did or when did you become interested in family history? Like what sparked that interest? And then also share maybe some surprising discoveries you might have made or, you know, or found, I should say, uh, about your family. I, I think my brothers and sisters would agree with me if I were to say that you can't be a French without being aware of your family history. Um, and that's because of our, mm. our parents um, our, our, particularly our mother, who um, was a, a historian uh, by any rights. Um, you know, she, um, she was trained as a psychologist, but she was an educator. So she founded the Americans, she founded Crispus Attucks in, in Roxbury in Massachusetts, as I mentioned earlier. And then when we moved to the Ivory Coast, she was the head of the American International School there. And she's always been heavily involved in education. But she... 
has always been a dedicated researcher of, of and, a, and a steward of her family history. And so she was, she's from a, a family in Washington, D.C. that goes back six or seven generations. But through her mm. father's side, it originates from, traces their origins to Orange County, Virginia. And that's where I am talking to you from today. I'm sitting in the house that was built by my three times great grandfather who was enslaved here in Orange County. And he was enslaved by his own father. And as, as was the case of, of many of the children of rape during the dark history of slavery in this country. So Orange County, as you may know, is home to a lot of very iconic American history. It's where James Madison lived. It's next door to Albemarle County. Uh, 20 miles from here is the home of Thomas Jefferson, Monticello. So on the one hand, you have the home of James Madison, Montpelier, and uh, the home just a few miles away of Jefferson. But in between those two houses, along the Southwest Mountains, are a patchwork of really iconic families that were um, mm-hmm. that were very uh, fundamental to the founding era of the country. So one of them is James Barber's family. And James Barber was mm-hmm. the, the 18th governor of Virginia. And he was going back even one further generation than my three times grandfather. He was uh, one of the people who impregnated one of his slaves. And James Newman, who was um, in, married into the family of the Madisons and, and on that side of the county, was the person who impregnated one of his enslaved people, um, Rachel. And those, the children from those union, those births, and I'm calling it that way on purpose because I don't want to uh, pretend in any way that this was a, a union of love in either case, but those children mm-hmm. who were products of those physical unions are my ancestors and built the house that I'm sitting in today. So Due to, due to my mother's preservation of this history and, and every generation of the family uh, prior to her, her generation having preserved that history, you, you can't be a French really without knowing this history. And, and so for us, the question has been, and the challenge for my mother was to get us interested in the history so that we would do what she did and what her father did before her and what his father did before him, mm-hmm. which is to to conserve it, to preserve it, to interpret it, to share it, and to connect it to the larger history of the country and what was going on in this region going back to the founding era. And so that's that has really kind of, that's what got me involved in uh, that family interest, uh, that, that, that mm-hmm. bug that was, or that seed, if you will, that was planted by my mother is what got me involved at this stage in my life uh, involved in, in interpreting the history of Orange County in the region and uh, Montpelier in, in particular, where I serve as chair right now. And that's so interesting that your mom, I mean, it's great that your mom kind of, you know, was very interested in the family history and that, and continued that kind of carrying on that tradition um, that she learned from her father. So for me, I guess let's talk about Montpelier because you are the chairperson of the Montpelier Foundation Board of Directors. Um, so describe for the listeners, you know, Montpelier and kind of its importance to American history. Montpelier is 
one of the most important historic sites in the nation. I, I really can't think of any that are more important than Montpelier. I mean, there are, it's, it's kind of hard to rank importance in history, but it is foundational to uh, the history of this country in every aspect. So Montpelier is the name that the Madison family gave to a property of several thousand acres in Orange County. Orange County uh, used to extend from the Piedmont region of Virginia all the way out to the Mississippi River in the in the 18th century. Mm. So, you know, the these early colonists, what they did is they kind of, they, they inhabited the, first they inhabited the tidewater, so the, the coastal areas of Virginia, and then they moved out towards the, um, the higher plains, the, the, the Piedmont region, which was kind of a plateau between the fall line of the rivers and the, and the Blue Ridge Mountains. And then beyond the Blue Ridge Mountains initially was, for them, unexplored territory. And so they kind of drew lines on maps that went all the way out to the rivers and, and to the Mississippi, and they didn't really know what was beyond that. So Orange County used to be absolutely huge. And today it's, it's just a normal-sized county in central Virginia. It is the home, as I said, of, of James Madison. His grandfather, Ambrose, um, was the one who essentially gained control of thousands of acres here. Uh, it came from a, a land grant that was uh, initially granted to the king during colonial times, and then it found its way into the hands of the Madison family. Ambrose was still living in, uh, this is in the mid-18th century, he was still living in the Tidewater area, but he had come by this land and he sent enslaved people, a small group, along with an overseer to develop this land into a, to a farm. And they did that for about 10 years before the Madisons left that area of the, of the shore, you know, the, the Tidewater, and took residence there. And they initially built a house, which they called Mount Pleasant, on the property. And then the second home that was uh, built by Ambrose's uh, widow became what is today the birthplace of uh, our fourth president, James Madison. Now, why is it important? It's, it's not just because it belonged to Madison or that it's a beautiful home. It's important because of the, of the foundational history and the power of place that that history represents in our nation's origin story. And Montpelier is where Madison struggled intellectually with concepts mm -hmm. of, of, uh, of liberty and freedom and slavery. And he was able to, um, if he was anything, he was a scholar. And he was able mm. to be educated as a very wealthy uh, son of a planter in the classics and uh, had a tremendously rich education as many of those uh, of his social class did in that region. But he took a, an early interest in the classics that surpassed that of his contemporaries, such as Jefferson. And he was, you know, uh, multilingual. He spoke, uh, you know, fluent Greek, Hebrew, Latin, he spoke some Romance languages, and, and he was afforded this incredible education by the, by the people that his family enslaved. So the Madison mm -hmm. family enslaved over 300 people for over 140 years. And if you look at his journey as an intellectual, 
you will see that he went all the way back to the to the Greek classics. He's starting with Publius, which was his kind of his pen name as he wrote the Federalist Papers. And uh, Publius was a, a Greek philosopher. He was one of the early thinkers of, uh, uh, of the concept of representative democracy and separation of power. And he studied every success, Madison I'm talking about, Madison studied every successful experiment in democracy and every unsuccessful experiment in democracy as the American Revolution was taking shape and a new, new nation was emerging. So what were some of the paradigms of power that he was looking at? Well, I've mentioned democracy. And democracy mm -hmm. was, was nothing new in terms of human intellect and thought. You know, it, obviously, there was a record of it going back into, kind of in, into classical Greece, but it wasn't limited to classical Greece. There were democratic systems throughout the world in various different forms. In Africa, uh, systems of consensus building and in, in, in uh, village life and in empires um, that were very advanced in that, in that day. And also on this continent with Native American confederacies, uh, which is where a lot of the, the thinking behind of confederates, uh, you know, uh, federal governments uh, came from. And so Madison was inspired by all of this. And he was also confronted with another paradigm of power. And, mm -hmm. and that paradigm of power is the opposite of freedom and liberty. And it's slavery. And he was not any closer to one versus the other. And by that, I mean that he, he lived amongst both of these. Both of these paradigms of power were um, thrived at Montpelier side by side mm -hmm. during not only his life, but his parents' life and his grandfather's uh, grandparents' life and, and going, you know, even before that. Um, into uh, into their history uh, before they came to the United States. And so I think of Montpelier as being this incredibly unique place because at Montpelier, Madison developed and struggled with both of these concepts, freedom and slavery. And not only did he do that, because a lot of people did that in that time, not only did he do that, but he encoded his thoughts in a framework of governance. And that framework of governance contains a huge paradox. It speaks of liberty, mm -hmm. but it was developed in the context of slavery. And it abided slavery, yet it attempted to govern the transactions of a free nation, of a free people. It was our governing document for the purposes of liberty and freedom, while at the same time abiding its opposites. And when you go to Montpelier, you see both of these paradigms clash, and it's an incredible mm. experience. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I said that there were 300 people who the Madison family enslaved for over 140 years. Well, their 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 bodies are still there, just as Madison himself is still his body is still there. Madison's family is uh, buried in a beautifully well-kept uh, family graveyard that I think every American should come and visit as a matter of pilgrimage, frankly. Maybe 100 yards away from it is a small little forest. It mm -hmm. just looks like a collection of trees. And if you go 
across from the Madison Family Cemetery, there's a path that will take you there. You will come across a, a field of, of periwinkle that is at the edge of this forest. And if you look carefully, you will see little depressions in the forest floor. Mm. And if you come during winter, if you're lucky enough to come during the winter after a snow, those depressions fill with white snow and they look like the size of a human being. And that's because they are unmarked graves. And we have mm. discovered we have discovered over 250 unmarked graves on that very property that were the people who were governed by the other paradigm of power, which was the opposite of freedom and liberty, which is slavery, which enabled Madison to be who he was and enabled him to even think about the opposite of their lives, the opposite of what they were afforded in life. So when you come to Montpelier, there's tremendous power just in being there and being in this place where these two paradigms clash. And you can think of it as an interplay of light and darkness. And you see the shadows and the shadows reveal the, the degrees of gray that constitute real history. Because history is not a binary. It's not all good. It's not all bad. It's very, very complicated. And out of that paradox of light and darkness emerged our country. And I cannot think of any place that is more important to decoding the past. In other words, in understanding our very origins as a nation, our origin story. That's what I think of it as, our origin story. Mm -hmm. I can't think of another place that embodies that story more completely than Montpelier because the constitution emerged from there and everything that put that constitution into context, the context of that paradox of freedom and slavery thrived there. And it's, it's just an incredibly powerful place. And I have been to Montpelier several times. I did not know about the unmarked graves. So that's very interesting. I'm not surprised, but I kind of am that I didn't know about that, given how many times I've been to Montpelier and specifically looking at the Colors of Distinction exhibit. I was there a couple years ago, pre-COVID, um, viewing that. But with Montpelier and your connection to, to that place, uh, to the plantation, I should say, you know, what does it really mean to you and your family? As you serve as chairperson, you spend a lot of time there working with folks there. So what does it mean to you? It means quite a bit. So there's, I, I alluded to the family history of enslavement that occurred right here, the same place, right here in Orange County. So that, that's one very personal element for me. The, the Madisons, the Newmans, the Barbers, the Taylors, they all intermarried. And so did the people that they enslaved. And then I mentioned also that the white families impregnated very often the people that they enslaved. So it's, there's a very complicated web of uh, genealogy and family history that, that is still being unraveled now. Because of our, the, the records of our family, if any of them have been maintained. We've lost some, but we've been very, very fortunate to have access to a rich documented history. 
I know quite a bit about how our family relates to this history on a personal level. And it's very, it's always been something that has fascinated me. But on another level, what it means to me is something that is, I think, important for the country. Because going back to this notion of an origin story, uh, what happened in Montpelier is really the origin story of our nation, uh, literally as well as figuratively. And it is not unique history in any sense of the world for the country. Now, Virginia in this founding era was the richest part of the nation, uh, one of the richest places in the world. You know, the Sugar Islands in the Caribbean were the richest places in the world. But the United States quickly built um, an even more prosperous society that was based upon slavery. And that society grew prosperous and had inklings and, and visions of independence that was not unrelated to their prosperity. Um, and as we know throughout history, as countries do gain wealth, power, status, power often um, is, is contested. And that happened here. And, and so um, where that power came from is something that we don't like to talk that much about as we learn our, about our past. It's something that in many generations have kind of learned to, to kind of file away in, a, in an area of historical knowledge that is clouded with other stories, which kind of explain it as just being kind of collateral damage or just a bump along the road. And um, mm -hmm. so it's it, nothing could be further from the truth. And you you connect those dots when you when you come here. You connect the dots that were planted in the past and connect all the way to the present. And they're not political dots. They're not you know history is often presented in political. In, in, you know we're in a very partisan time in this country and. You know, you hear all of these things about insults that are hurled about, which are intended to prevent conversation and prevent learning. And these insults are like, you know, wokeism or CRT or all of these kind of trigger words that are that are meant to shut people down and stop conversation and stop learning. But when you come and you see it, there's another term that that I like to use, which is much more powerful mm -hmm. and much and and. and and more transcendent, and that's called ground truthing. And so if you come to Montpelier and you come for an archaeology dig, you can work alongside an archaeology and he'll, archaeologist and he'll give you a, a, a trowel and you can dig and you can go, pull out of the ground an artifact that no one has touched in over 200 years and you're the first person to touch it. And you, you, can't, you, you, you cannot argue with its existence because it's in your hand. And it mm -hmm. has a context and it, it relates to the things that were buried next to it and the things that were buried next to that. And suddenly a tapestry of truth, it comes into vision. And so what does it mean to me? It means a, the privilege of being able to participate in the ground truthing of American history and the, mm. the, 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 the expansion of our origin story. I think it's very important in a divided time like we live in today, for us to transcend political deflection and question what our origin story is and to see if there's not a source of unity in that, unity in mm -hmm. understanding the complexity of our past. 
and understanding that if we can accept what happened in our past and where we came from and the things that we overcame and the things that we have still to overcome, if we can accept those, those truths, then we have hope to be a much more resilient people, a more resilient nation that can live up to its ideals in ways that are much more apparent and tangible to everyone. So it means to me an expanded origin story, having the privilege to be part of it, that expansion and doing it for the purposes of greater greater unity in this in this country. And that, by the way, you, your, your listeners may not know this, but Madison's, Madison, as he was dying, he shared on his, in his writing as well as on his deathbed some of his overriding concerns. And, and mm. they were not very surprising. They were, what will be the legacy of slavery going forward? I mean, Madison had a lot mm. of power at that time. He could have done things differently, right, about slavery. And he didn't. He didn't free any of his slaves. None of his, no one in his family did. And slavery was abided by in the Constitution. So he, he worried for the nation. Um, he's a smart man. And he knew that this was going to be something for future generations to resolve. But he had doubts about their ability to resolve it. So he worried about the legacy of slavery. And he was concerned, deeply, deeply concerned about unity. And I think... And keeping the nation united, and, and that's what I mean by the, that word unity, keeping mm-hmm. it a united nation and keeping Americans um, uh, convinced that it's worth it uh, to stay united. Now he, he, neither he nor Jefferson thought that the Constitution was, you know, a, a religious document that shouldn't be changed forever and ever. I mean, he, he was the author of 12 amendments, which later became 10 uh, which we know today is our Bill of Rights. And, you know, his his great friend Jefferson thought that, you know, the Constitution should be revised every, what, 20 years. But um, but I think what he was worried, what he was worried about was, can this country stay united? And can we weather the legacy of the evil of slavery? Ironically, hmm. I think that for Americans today, coming to his home and understanding and ground truthing the history that took place on the landscape and that can be revealed in the landscape, not just the house, but the landscape itself, and having the experience of ground truthing that difficult history and accepting it as our history. Ironically, I think that is one of the things that could bring us closer to the goal of unity that Madison mm was concerned about on his deathbed. So that, that, that's, that's another aspect of what it means to me personally. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's, I like the, uh, you know, the term that you've been using throughout the conversation around origin story. And it was interesting when you mentioned kind of some of the families that are in um, Orange County and you mentioned the name of Taylor mm-hmm. and my fourth grade grandfather, uh, Lewis Carter, was uh, enslaved, I believe, by a Dr. John W. Taylor in Madison County, Virginia. So mm-hmm. I smiled a little bit when I heard that last name. And I was thinking, oh, I probably need to explore the Taylors more uh, when I have time to do my own research. But one question yes. for you around descendant community is, 
I kind of noticed when I was at Mount Pillar um, many years ago that the descendant community of Mount Pillar is defined differently, I think, than other places. So I wanted to discuss that more. How is the descendant community defined? And then uh, talk more about the uh, memorialization project at Mount Pillar as it relates to the descendants of the enslaved and the enslaved. Great. Thank you. Um, so let me, at some point, I think I need to talk about parity and, and why the descendant community is relevant to the story. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I'll do that. Let me say that uh, first, what do we mean by a descendant community? So a descendant community is a term that was coined by anthropologist uh, Dr. Michael Blakey uh, from the uh, College of William and Mary, who was the lead scientist at the African American African burial ground in New York City and in Lower Manhattan, which is one of the nation's leading uh, national parks right now. Everyone should go visit it. And he he was a he is a pioneering. Um, anthropologist slash archaeologist. And what he uh, did was he was instrumental in convening a group of about 57 scholars in 2018, I want to say, yes, I think it was 2018, June of 2018, at Montpelier, who came uh, together over a long weekend to discuss, you know, the, the the difficulties and the challenges of the engagement between the descendants of people who were enslaved at historical sites, such as Montpelier, Monticello, Mont Vernon, and especially presidential sites, but all sites of former enslavement, and the institutions that ran those sites. So the the foundations, the boards, the the various different different uh, governing bodies that ran these sites. And typically what had happened up until that point was that the story of the enslaved were either, you know, historically ignored, erased from the landscape, or just kind of peripherally mentioned. So you you typically had in many of these places up until uh, relatively recently, a kind of a, an experience that you might imagine at a kind of a a plantation visit where you just see the big columns and you, you know, you're told of the stories of kind of the, the bells, the Southern bells and the, and the, the Southern gentlemen and just kind of uh, this, this romantic version of, of a past that really didn't exist in that simplicity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that evolved over time uh, in these sites, but what it didn't do was, center the stories of the people who actually built those sites and built the wealth of the people who lived there, of the white families who lived there, or told the stories of the the enslaved families who, you know, who had just as many uh, generations of people living there as the white families did, but whose names were not known, or if they were, there was just a couple of people who were in proximity to whoever the, the white protagonist was. And so that relationship really kind of grew, uh, that, that new relationship plateaued at a level of kind of tokenism, meaning that descendants of the enslaved were invited in many instances to be part of events, to give talks or to, to have meetings, 
on the terms of the institutions themselves. So the foundations, if, if they wanted to kind of, you know, say, hey, we're doing something with Black History too, they would make an effort to call up some people that were known to them and say, come on by, we'd like to introduce you to our visitors or our funders or whatnot. And that was a very opportunistic relationship. So this group of scholars got together and they wanted to uh, determine what are some of the best practices, what should the best practices be for uh, the relationship between the foundations, the boards, and the, con- the communities of descendants of enslaved at a particular site. And that mm-hmm. grew into a work that was published at Montpelier called The Rubric of Best Practices of Engaging Descendant Communities. And that was published mm-hmm. in le- that year of 2018. And as I said, Dr. Blakey was instrumental in that. In that book, uh, or in that in that rubric, descendant communities um, were defined. And essentially, the definition of a rubric, uh, uh, sorry, the definition of the <clears throat> descendant community was essentially people who knew of a genealogical connection to a particular site, mm-hmm. or people who knew uh, of a documented one, or people who knew of one that was part of their family's oral history, mm. or people who w- knew of a connection, a genealogical connection of a, of a neighboring or a nearby site, or even people who were committed to helping understand and uncover those relationships. So it was a very expansive uh, definition. It didn't, the way I like to think about it was, it was not a definition that said, here, let me prick your finger with this needle and go back and do a DNA analysis and see if you're related to X person. And the reason why that that would not have been a very helpful measure is that the history that we're talking about was obviously erased. It was not documented. That's why there are these cemeteries that are unmarked. Mm -hmm. Families that hold people in slavery did not keep around a lot of records saying, especially after the Civil War, saying I ens- our family en- enslaved 600 people and hear their names. And they kept even less records that said, by the way, the males of our families raped the enslaved women and had children with them and enslaved their own children. So those were not, those parts of history were not going to be found in the documentary record. Where they were going to be found was in the houses of, of people who descended from them in their oral histories, in their own documented history, as in the case of my family, but not in not in the big house, right? So the big house is not going to have a document a document saying, "Yes, my son raped, you know, Rachel and had a child, and Rachel right. is, is my enslaved uh, uh, servant right now." And 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 then another aspect of this is that people who are enslaved have lives. They don't just have lives of toil. They they fall in love. And they have children and they have families and they have spouses and all of those people who they fall in love with and have children with and have, you know, live a human life with don't live on the same plantation. They live nearby. And so what is what is the boundary of a family? Is it the white planter uh, property boundary? I don't think so. The, 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 The definition of a family is the definition of any family. It's not tied to property. It's. Mm-hmm. whoever the, the people accepted and loved and interacted with and shared their lives with. And so descendant, a true academic 
honest definition of a descendant community needed to accommodate those historical realities. And that's why the definition of descendant community in the rubric is broad so that it, it does that, precisely that. Um, there are examples in my own personal history where I know very, very detailed information about the white families and the enslaved people who were traded and raped and all of that. But for example, you know, I can look across here, I'm looking at the Newman Plantation, which is right next to the Madison Plantation. And I know that the Newmans and the Madisons, the white families themselves married. And I know that they brought enslaved people into the marriage as gifts. And I know that those enslaved people had children from the white families. And so was it a Newman or was it a Madison who enslaved, who impregnated that woman? Do you see what I'm saying? So they, they didn't, it, yep. they didn't write, they didn't write down, oh, it was me. It was me, the, the, the nephew of Madison, or it was me, the son of Newman. But here I am today. And we know, you know, that that's what happened because we have, we have the documented records of the people. So these are very, comp family relationships are complicated to begin with, but when they're cloaked by history that people don't want revealed, they become even more complicated. And that's why I talk about this being part of the American story. It's just the American story. It's that simple, but it really isn't simple at all, right? It's very complicated. Yeah, it's not It's not simple at all. And I think that's part of the challenge when doing African-American genealogy research, right, is that we have these different relationships that existed um, you know, on one plantation or another with uh, those who were in a relationship or a, a enslaved marriage that may not have lived together. And as you've talked about it, within your family, and a lot of folks have this history, the, the rape of the enslaved woman and the child that was born also enslaved, but by the enslavers, right? That um, the enslavers enslaving their own children. And that was something that was I've seen in my my research, um, not particularly for my family yet, but for others. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to talk about today is sort of with Mount Pillar, we've discussed before that, you know, these historical narratives that we have, right? These narratives that people have created to kind of erase the history of the enslaved or, you know, and not even document it. But the narratives have been used to trigger people into different camps. And so I want you to expand on that idea a little bit of how the narratives are used to trigger people into camps, so to speak. And then how do you feel that historic sites like Mount Pillar might be able to help, right? To right. kind of help us not be triggered into, into those camps, but truly be united around this history and around American history. Great question. Thank you. Um, so first of all, I said earlier that I believe the history and I mentioned the origin story, history has the power to unite. I think that it's a very different type of power than other, such as political power, right? So partisan disputes exist to divide. That's literally the root of the word, uh, you know, this party and that. And those two things don't mix. And I'm not interested at all in partisan disputes. They're actually, um, they don't shed light. They expand darkness. So history, mm -hmm. history through historical knowledge can bring together people through a common origin story who may be on a partisan basis, you know, at each other's throats. 
I, I, I just think it's a, it's a, it's, I've seen it happen. I've seen it, uh, you know, understanding my own history and, and, and welcoming people on different sides of a divide, but under, and, and us coming to the realization that we have a very common origin story. I've seen it happen in my own life. So I, I think that one of the things about what we're trying to do at Montpelier is, is very, we're, we're trying to do, we're trying to do just that, but in a very systemic way because it's a systemic issue. Our history, you know, was Mm -hmm. a a very, our history was codified, and I mentioned the Constitution earlier, so, and and how that was a codified set of governance uh, rules, and how slavery itself was codified. And all of these systems that were put into place over 200 years ago reverberate into our daily lives, into the present. And what we did at Montpelier is we organized, we being the descendants, organized, uh, uh, adopted the rubric and decided that we would use its systemic insight that's based upon the thought of Madison called, and that, that insight is a concept called parity, structural parity. And we, and I'll explain what it was and what it is in a second, but structural parity is the principle that the group of of the descendants that I represent adopted and um, and it implemented at Montpelier. And that's why um, today I am the chairman of Montpelier. So um, parity is the simple notion, which is that uh, the descendants of the people uh, who were enslaved and built the sites such as Montpelier and, and Monticello and Mount Vernon and others, should have equal decision-making authority as the legacy institutions, the legacy boards. And in, in running the site and in interpreting the history there um, and being responsible for the site. And so after a very, very hard struggle that lasted for a little over two years, the organization that I am the founding chair of called the Montpelier Descendants Committee was able to achieve parity on the board of Montpelier. Um, I was already on the board of Montpelier, and after we were able to achieve parity after the struggle that I mentioned, um, the representatives of the descendants community were nominated in equal numbers on the board of Montpelier. And your question is about the power of 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 you know the 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 history uh, itself and what it what it can do and what I like to remind people as they look at Montpelier um, as a, a a model of what's possible is that parity what we what we were able to achieve is rooted in representative government it's rooted in the very principles that Madison mm-hmm. you know was was enunciating. It's rooted in the same principles that that are you know that breathe life into the Constitution, which is that uh, a free people should be able to represent their own, uh, elect their own representatives, and and uh, exercise sovereignty and autonomy, and that should be true in institutions, cultural institutions, museums, um, and 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 even beyond that. So that's what we're doing, and and that systemic approach now allows Montpelier mm-hmm. to um, center the history 
elevate, if you will, let me use a different word, elevate the history that has been um, demoted for centuries um, that is responsible mm-hmm. for the very existence, not only of Montpelier, but the economy of the founding of the nation and the nation itself. And I would go as far as to say that the history, once it's properly understood, will expand into areas that we're not typically, um, we don't typically think of. So we, we, t- we think of slavery as, you know, the way it's taught or was taught is that, you know, it was an unfortunate episode in American history and people were uh, terribly abused, but, you know, bump in the road and we got over it. And now we're, you know, Martin Luther King came and linked first Lincoln, then Martin Luther King, and we're off to the races. Well, that obviously is not a full story of what happened. And we still live very much with the legacy of that dark uh, majority of our nation's history. And I think that when you go back to the origins of the country and you understand that a Madison himself was not sui generis, he did not descend from the clouds without a context, without a community. He was the product of, like we all are, of the communities that we live in. What community did Madison live in? Well, he lived in a community in which every member member of the Madison family was surrounded by 28 enslaved people. So you think about that. Hmm. James Madison lived Mm -hmm. with his family for every Madison member, 28 enslaved people. You, 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 you know, they didn't, they didn't walk around in bubbles and parasols and not encounter each other. Right. That was a community. Now the community was very Mm -hmm. unequal. It was an, it was a, it was a, severely, perversely unequal community from a power perspective, obviously, very inhumane. However, it was still a community. And in a very fundamental way, it can be said that James Madison himself came from an African-American community. And communities have a lot of power. They have cultural power. They have intellectual power. They transmit values. They transmit knowledge. And that that information flows in all directions. It doesn't just flow in one direction. So James Madison was afforded this incredible education. And I encourage every American to come and go through his library and walk through it. It's the most important room in American history. And look at the books that he read, the, the hundreds and hundreds of books that he, he studied. But he also had a different source of knowledge. And it was the knowledge of all of those people who surrounded him, who surrounded his his father and his grandfather, who solved problems on a daily basis, who in in essence used evidence from uh, what was happening in the fields to solve economic problems for Madison that Madison could not have solved on his own, that the answers weren't in a book. Um, How do you develop the most uh, effective method of plowing? Well, they were doing, uh, Madison's father wanted to do up and down plowing on hills. Anyone could tell you that it's going to result in soil erosion. And that's what happened. And, um, and, and we have evidence on the plantation, on the former plantation of Madison, that as the soil was depleted by erosion and by the planting of tobacco, which is a very harsh crop on, on the nutrients of a soil, that the enslaved Africans innovated a solution to plant on soil that 
would have been abandoned. And what they did is they took the soil at the bottom of the hills, which had all of the fertile soil but was underwater, and instead of moving that soil somewhere else to plant on, they moved the water. And they moved the water by engineering these very sophisticated irrigation uh, canals that, if you go there today, still run clear. And you can see that Madison was able, uh, why and how he was able to derive a crop in an area that uh, was not uh, the case for others who did not have access to this hydrological engineering. Well, that was brought to him by people from Africa who came from cultures and societies that had solved that problem already. And they had developed contour plowing and they had developed hydro hydrological engineering systems and they brought it with them even as enslaved peoples. So I contend that is just one of many examples uh, in which knowledge itself flowed in, in, you know, up and down the hierarchy of power. And that's what happens in communities. So another way of looking at that is that evidence-based knowledge is a theory until it happens in practice. And when it happens in practice, that's when you have the implementation of enlightenment concepts. And so the enlightenment mm. in theory is one thing. The enlightenment in practice was actually implemented by enslaved people. And they had agency in that, and they had agency in the actual concepts themselves. So that in a way, the concepts were not all in books, and the knowledge was a contested body, uh, a corpus of evidentiary trial and error that continued for centuries and was um, responsible for tremendous wealth that the world had never seen in history. So all of that is something that I, I feel that history can provide. And if you come to Montpelier, you'll, you'll leave understanding history a little bit differently. That's fascinating. I mean, I could of course, have a conversation with you for several hours because your wealth of knowledge, not only just about Montpelier, but about the enslaved and the communities and, and you know, their lives in Central Virginia and Orange County in particular is fascinating. And I am sure, uh, I definitely would like to have you back for a part two so we can get <laughs> into uh, other conversations and other questions. But I want to thank you so much for joining me today in Conversations with Kenyatta. Um, I will have to go back to Mount Pillar the next time that I'm in Virginia because uh, I am doing a visit there uh, now that folks are traveling a little bit more. And I've always enjoyed it when I visit it. So thank you, James, so much. Vinyata, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'd love to host you back uh, at Montpelier very soon. I thank you so much for this opportunity to, to speak with you. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle kenyatta.berry, on Facebook at facebook.com slash kenyattadb, and on Twitter at kenyattadb. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at kenyattaberry.com. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests on Conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Berry.